This is John Gescheidmeyer of Wisconsin Real Estate Today, your real estate expert. This podcast is designed to equipping people with the teaching and tools they need to succeed in real estate. I hope you enjoy this episode and subscribe for more real estate content. In today's podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about something that everyone loves. And trust me, I say that facetiously and somewhat sarcastically, but it's paperwork. And let's be honest, folks, this is probably the most important thing that you can pay attention to. And and I know a lot of people would say, well, John, why do I need to really focus on paperwork? Because when it's all said and done, I've got a realtor, a licensed realtor, and that person, he or she, should uh, walk me through all this. Well, let's pause for just a second and be real. One of the things that you're going to find as we go through uh, what hopefully is a very long and um, um, popular podcast series And I'm just going to be honest with you, because I think that you as the buyer or seller need to just understand that not every licensed agent has the same experience, they don't have the same training, and it's important to understand that they may not have gone down this road before. So those are all questions as we've covered in other podcasts, how to hire a realtor, how to hire a buyer's agent. so I'll let you go back to those podcasts for, for a few more details on, on how to select an agent. But I think an informed client, I've always felt, is probably your greatest client. And so in our case, we want to make sure that no matter what, you as the client understands what's happening along the way. I'll say this um, probably over and over, and that is that I think one thing that probably is the, is the biggest complaint that people have, the general public has about realtors, is the realtor didn't tell me anything. They didn't communicate with me. They didn't let me know what was happening along the way. And when things happened, I didn't know what to expect and I didn't know what to do. And that's not something that I want my clients to say. Uh, I don't want them to think that. If they have questions, I want them to let me know. It doesn't matter to me how silly the question is. And quite honestly, if they've asked it before. So today I want to go through the offer to purchase from a perspective of a seller, but also as a buyer. And I think you can pull away a lot of nuggets on this. Um, The WB11 residential offer to purchase in Wisconsin was recently um, kind of redone. Different sections were moved around. There were some things that were added. And I'm not going to go line by line through this, but I have the new one in front of me. And if you Google the WB11 residential offer to purchase, In the upper left-hand corner, you want to look uh, where it says approved by the Wisconsin Real Estate Examining Board with an optional use date of November 1st of 2019 and a mandatory use date of January 1st of 2020. That's the form that I'm looking at. And I, again, I'm not going to go line by line, but we're going to go through it. and We're going to talk a little bit about some scenarios and different what-if things that could come up during your transaction. Again, an informed client is the best client. So on the top, it Probably the most important thing that I look for if I'm a listing agent, when another agent sends the offer to purchase over to me, the very first thing I look for on line two, line one and two, is that the licensee drafting this offer is either the agent of the buyer, the agent of the seller or listing firm, or the agent of the buyer and seller. So what does that mean? If they're an agent of the buyer and seller, that means that there's an agency relationship on both sides. And that agent is playing Switzerland. They're, they're in the middle. They have the buyer and they have the seller. Now, I want to talk about that for a second because it's important to understand the differences. If I am conducting an open house for you, my client, and I'm lucky enough and fortunate enough to find the buyer, 
And let's be honest, that's what we do those for, right? I'd rather have, I'd rather secure a buyer and guide them along than have another agent come in and negotiate, negotiate against you because what are they going to do? They're going to try to get as much money in the best terms for their client, right? Now, even though I have a fiduciary responsibility to my clients, and in this case, I'll just say I'm the listing agent. If a buyer comes forward, I have to treat them honestly and fairly, but I don't represent them. And that's important to know when there's a disclosure form that I have to give them when I first meet them. And when they come to the open house, I can't do a buyer agency agreement in, in most cases. There, there's some cases where you could. But if I have my own buyers that are under a buyer agency agreement, meaning that I work specifically for them, and I introduce them to one of my sellers, one of my listings, and they love it and they want to write an offer on it, well, now I'm representing the agent of the buyer and the seller. So that scenario is a very real scenario. It doesn't happen all the time, but it's very real. If an agent submits an offer and they have lined out everything but the fact that they are an agent of the seller or the listing firm, what that means is on the other side, they don't have, an ex they don't have a buyer agency agreement. So oftentimes I'll call that agent and I'll say, hey, I just want to thank you for the offer. So let's talk about it a little bit. Maybe they offered a, a, an offer price of $280,000 on a $300,000 listing. Well, so that's $20,000 under asking. So the first thing I ask the, the seller is, how high do you think we can, or the, uh, the buyer's agent, how high do you think we can get that, that buyer up? And usually on the other side of the phone call, I get this, well, John, I, I can't discuss that. And I said, but no, actually you can because you don't represent the buyer, you represent my seller. And agents don't understand that and they don't understand who they represent. It's so important to understand that when you're writing the offer and, and of course negotiating it. So that's the first thing that kind of stands out for me on lines one and two. A little later down in the, the form here, it talks what's included, the purchase price, what's not included. Remember that fixtures, things that are permanently attached to the wall or the structures of your home are considered included by, by definition. So in other words, if you have a sconce light um, in a hallway that you want to take with you, you have to make sure that that's not included in that offer. And you may say, well, it's not a big deal. I mean, I'm just going to take that chandelier or I'm going to take that pool table lamp. Um, I had a seller in the town of Lisbon years ago, and we excluded this in the offer. Um, so... It was a pool table lamp that, if you can picture this, it's in, a it's in a rec room, finished rec room. But the lamp was actually, the cords went through the drop ceiling tiles. And so it was, it was plugged into a wall above the tiles. So if you're a buyer, all you see is cords kind of going up through those, through those um, tiles, if you will. And I had a huge argument with the buyer's agent during the final walkthrough when they called and said, well, your, your people are going to owe us about a $500 bill here because they have to replace this light fixture that your seller took. So I referred back to the offer and I said, this is not considered a fixture, right? Now, if we wanted to, we could have went a step further and included that, but we knew it was plugged in. It wasn't permanently attached. In most cases, those lights are permanently wired in and those, of course, are considered fixtures. Things such as water softeners, iron curtain systems, those are all considered included in your purchase price. So let me give you a scenario there. Let's just say I am selling your house and I go and, and we, we do a very thorough tour of the home. And especially if, I, if I'm listing, we, we spend a lot of time in the house. It's, it's usually ours. 
But I'm going to ask you a lot of questions. And one of the questions I want to ask you is, do you own this water softener system? Now, I had a seller tell me, yes, we own it. So, of course, let's fast forward to closing. The buyers uh, and their agent put that the water softening equipment is included in the offer. They added that, although it's in there already as a standard um, inclusion. But come closing, everything went well. Buyers did the final walkthrough. But between the final walkthrough and the closing, um, or after closing, rather, they uh, they get this, this notice saying, hey, um, we see that you purchased this property. We need our rental equipment back, or you need to pay us for the remainder of the rental agreement or just assume the rental. So what was the scenario there? Seller didn't realize that this was rented equipment. So I had to make that unfortunate phone call to the seller and ask them again, hey, you know, I, I recall that you had rented this or that you didn't rent this equipment and you owned it. And they, of course, said, well, geez, um, we didn't know that. And they ended up writing a check to the buyer for $600. The buyer then paid the water softening company that owned that equipment. So be specific when you list your home with your agent about what you do not want included. That is most important. And you have to make sure that when the offer is negotiated, and sometimes this stuff gets really complicated and really kind of drawn out, but you have to make sure that you're not including those items. So let's talk a little bit about binding acceptance. Binding acceptance on an offer is the time that both parties must not only sign the offer by, but deliver it to the other side. In other words, I'm a buyer's agent and I'm gonna buy, uh, my clients wanna buy a home and so I write the offer for them. And I give the seller until 10 o'clock tonight. And I always include Central Standard Time because that's where we are. But I'll always include, you know, let's say 10 p.m. Central Standard Time as our deadline. Now, if the seller does not respond to us by that time, it doesn't mean the offer's dead necessarily. It just means that that offer is no longer binding on both parties. So if the seller signs it, gets it to their agent, and their agent delivers it to me at 10.05, that's not a binding accepted offer, binding accepted offer anymore. We can still fix that, right? But we have to do a counter offer, and we have to just state that both parties agree that the offer was accepted on today's date. Um, there's other ways you can do that as well, but that's one of the ways. The point is that sometimes people will just wait until after the deadline if they feel that they might be getting uh, competing offers, they may wait. And, and some inexperienced agents will call and they'll be very irate. You, you didn't respond to us by our deadline. Well, I, I don't really have to. I don't, and the seller doesn't have to. It just means that it's not binding on both parties. So let's talk a little bit about delivery. Now in your offer, there are different ways that I can deliver paperwork. So if, let's use that scenario. We'll kind of build on that one. It's 955. 957, 958, whatever it is. And I'm not saying I would cut it this close, but for my example, I'm going to say it's still before 10 o'clock. I deliver a signed accepted offer to the buyer's agent. And at 10.03, they come back with an email or even a notice that says, oh, we, we, we withdraw our notice. We withdraw our offer. We, we, we don't want to buy the house anymore. Now, technically speaking, and I'm not an attorney, but technically speaking, we already delivered a binding accepted offer. And so according to the contract, that is a binding accepted offer on both parties. Now, let me pause by saying a couple things just so it's said. And so I can essentially um, 
make sure that I'm covered here. I am not an attorney. I never went to law school. We are allowed as licensees to practice law within a certain confined boundaries. In other words, we can practice real estate law within this contract. When things get complicated or things are starting to evolve outside of this contract, I no longer have authority to act on your behalf and I have to refer you to an attorney. Sometimes people will get frustrated and they'll say, well, geez, John, why did I hire you? I know you couldn't see that scenario coming you know, from the buyer or the seller on the other side, but now I gotta pay for an attorney. And I know that's frustrating, but I, there are certain things I can do and can't do. The second disclaimer I wanna give you is that I'm, I'm talking to you as a seller or buyer. This is not legal advice. It should not be construed as legal advice. And you should always consult with your attorney. So if at any part of this you either disagree or maybe you've had a scenario that's similar, um, you do need to consult with an attorney. So I just want to say we're, we're just talking the form here. We're just talking about pointers, right? All right, so the closing on page one is just a deadline. It's a deadline that the buyer must close by. Let's talk a little bit about earnest money. As I flip the page here, and you might be able to hear me doing that, as I flip the page, let's talk a little bit about earnest money for just a second. We're going to cover this more in other podcasts, but this concept of earnest money, I don't think a lot of people really understand. Earnest money is money that the buyer puts down after they get an accepted offer or at the time they write the offer. In my world, the higher the amount of the earnest money, usually the more, in, the more serious the buyer is. That earnest money gets held in a trust account. Usually it's the listing agent's trust account, their brokerage trust account. And that cannot just be released when the offer becomes dead. So let's say my buyers write an offer and right to cure is something we're going to get into in a totally different, because that's a long, longer conversation than here. But let's say my buyers um, kill the deal after an inspection. They have a right to do it. But yet the, the seller doesn't sign the cancellation paperwork. The listing agent can't release the earnest money just because one party says, hey, I want out. Both parties have to sign that, can that cancellation. It's called a cancellation and mutual release form. And that can get very complicated and frustrating. And sometimes you're just delaying the inevitable. And oftentimes a seller might decide not to sign that form out of spite. And, and that's never a good idea. A good, experienced, reputable real estate agent can walk you through the pros and the cons. But... Any earnest money disputes, there is a procedure for within the laws of Wisconsin, and usually attorneys are involved at that point. However, let's go on to better things, right? So the offer to purchase also incorporates the seller's real estate condition report. Now, if you write the offer and the seller for some reason didn't complete the real estate condition report, oftentimes with a for sale by owner purchase, they don't know on the other side what they need to complete and what they don't. There are references on page two that cover that scenario. So all of the things that are on the real estate condition report, all the definitions of each section, those are all included in the offer. So by reference, they're there. Let's get to the page um, that covers inspections and testing. And then in the new form, it's, it's page four. The inspections and testing section and you have to understand the difference between inspections and testing. So let's maybe talk about that for a second. Inspections are things that a home inspector or a third-party independent contractor, perhaps, or an expert in a certain field can see. They don't test, right? Inspecting and testing are completely different. Sometimes home inspectors will cross the line in this issue. 
they may think they have the authority to test the air or substances for mold, that type of thing, when they don't. Those are negotiated at the offer to purchase and the time you're doing those negotiations. Those are also things you have to have the conversations with while you're negotiating the offer with your agent. Inspections allow people to do um, really observations. I think that's probably the key word. Um, you can do an observation of the property, but you can't test. So you can't test for things like carbon monoxide or LP gas or natural gas, you know, something that's used as a fuel source, perhaps. One of the biggest ones that we test for today is radon. So if these are conversations that you as a buyer are not having long before you actually get to the point of writing the offer with your buyer's agent, you're probably going to be a little bit behind the eight ball. I'm a very organized person, and I want people to know what's coming long before we even get to that point. So with buyers, I'll usually sit down and talk to them about what the offer to purchase is. Now, at the time we're negotiating the offer, I'll hit the high points again, because oftentimes it may have been months earlier when we, you know, when we first went through the form. But when it's all said and done, that inspection is huge. And I never recommend, including my flippers, including my investors, I never recommend they write an offer without an inspection contingency, inspection and testing contingency. Truth be told, oftentimes they do though. John, we understand, we got it, but I have to make sure that I'm giving them the right advice, right? So right to cure. Right to cure very simply means that if I give you the seller the right to cure any defects, we'll talk about that word in a second, but if I give you the right to cure defects, that means that I can't just kill the deal when let's say the radon level from testing is over the state's or the EPA's um, threshold of 4.0 picocuries liters or picocuries per liter. Now that may be some technical terms, but essentially the EPA has said, hey, look, in a home, in a basement specifically, we think that this number of four is, is livable, if you will. Now, granted, we'd all like to see zero, but when it's all said and done, that's kind of our threshold. Your agent can talk about that on either the listing side or the buyer side. So if I give the seller the right to cure, that means I can't kill the deal if the radon comes in at, let's say, 7.2. We have to give them the opportunity to cure that defect. Now, throughout the contract, it's important to note that you're going to see definitions and words that are different. So I sold an attorney's home on the east side of Milwaukee a while ago, and he kept calling the word defect either a defect or a capital D defect. And I learned a lot from Steve. I learned a lot from him. I was a younger agent, and he said, John, when you see a capital D defect in that offer, that's a different definition, and that's defined somewhere else within that offer. And he was right, it was. If, if the word in a sentence is defective with a small d, that may be a different definition. A defect is something that could significantly harm that property or adversely affect the value of that property in most cases. So refer to the offer to purchase and some of the definitions when you have questions. On page five of the offer, it talks a little bit about the radon testing contingency. And I just gave a good example of how that works. Generally speaking, when I write an offer to purchase, we will always encourage the buyer to do a radon test. It's about $125, $150 extra on a home inspection. It's monitored usually by electronic equipment through the home inspector or a designee of that home inspector. 
and it's left in the basement, usually in a place undisturbed for a minimum of 48 hours. And it reads the radon levels every hour on the hour and then gives you an average when it's all said and done. But it's important to look at the peaks and the lows. Now, if you're a seller and you've got one of those things in your house, don't try to open all the doors and let in the air. It does detect those atmospheric condition changes. So those, those equipment uh, pieces are pretty smart. But nonetheless, you know, radon, there's a lot of thoughts about radon, whether it's legitimate or not. It is known to be the second leading cause of lung cancer. And if I'm representing my buyers, I will always say, hey, guys, I would definitely test for this for sure. So another section, and they reworded this a little bit, is called the financing commitment contingency. And essentially what that means is that your buyer, within a prescribed amount of time, usually between 30 and 40 days, has to come up with a mortgage and has to deliver to the seller what we call loan commitment. Now, the loan commitment, and this is a little misunderstood as well, but the loan commitment is a commitment from the lender to the buyer to finance the purchase of their home. But there are always conditions to that, and there has to be. So the financing contingency, just because it's delivered, doesn't mean the deal is done. It doesn't mean that you're at the finish line. You might have two weeks or a week to go for closing, and if one of those buyers passes away or loses their job or something significantly changes within their financial arena, then you might be in trouble. Um, I always tell people, please don't count your blessings until you're walking away from the closing table with that check <laughs> or your money has been wired into your, to your institution. Nonetheless, if the buyer cannot get financing on the terms contained within the financing contingency, they can kill the deal. So it's important that your agent, when you get an offer, understands that not only how much the buyer plans on putting down, but you have to compare this section to the pre-approval. No one, in my opinion, anywhere in the state, no one should accept an offer without pre-approval. And if on those rare occasions we get a pre-approval for whatever reason, uh, let's say it's uh, an offer that comes in on a Sunday, the buyers were not expecting to actually buy a house, but they stopped by an open house, they met their, their agent there, they called their agent and said, oh my goodness, you got to get over here. We love this house. We weren't anticipating it. That agent drops everything and runs over there. And now they're writing an offer. They can't get a hold of the letter to the lender to do a pre-approval. I'll ask if they have an old pre-approval. I mean, give me one that was a couple months old. But then we'll put a contingency in that accepted offer. We'll counter the offer with some language that says, okay, guys, we will accept your offer, but here's the deal. We're going to make sure that no matter what, within two business days, you get a, an updated pre-approval. And if not, if you don't do that, the seller at the seller's sole discretion can kill this deal. There are a lot of sub-contingencies, if you will, within the financing contingency, such as the rate. You know, if the rates are at 3.875, right? Let's say they're at, you know, three and seven eighths, and they put a limit of four in there, I would counter that back with a little cushion. Because the reality is that rates could go up or down at any given time. And, you know, if it's a, if they locked in at, at four and a quarter or four and an eighth, you know, they could come back and say, you know what, we don't want to, we don't want to buy this house. So a lot of things to consider, right? When you're, when you're looking at the offer itself. And I want to fast forward to secondary offers, because this is something I think that not a lot of people really think about. 
And if you're a good buyer's agent, you're coaching your people to understand that in today's society, it's really difficult to make an offer on any property where you know you're going to have competition with a home to sell attached to it. So what does that mean? We have to get creative with our financers, our buyers, lenders, and we have to go to them prior to and say, hey, look, we have a home to sell. We're going to use that equity. Let's say we've got, you know, 30% equity in that home. We're going to use 20% of that to fund the purchase through what is essentially kind of known as a bridge loan. There's other terms for it. But we're going to look at that and we're going to say, okay, now we can make this happen. So that way, the buy and it's a little bit of a risk for the buyers, there's no doubt. Um, that's, that's for another conversation. But if I have three offers coming in, even if a cash offer is less than an offer with a home to sell, guess which one we're probably going to be accepting? Cash offer. If I have a financing offer versus one with financing and a home sale attached to it, of course we're going to we're going to probably go with the one that doesn't have the home to sell. Now that kind of stinks if you're in that position, but an experienced realtor can get you past that. Tax prorations. There's really essentially four different options here. Generally, what we do with tax prorations is we take the previous year's taxes, we divide it by however many days of the year there were that year, you know, 365, 366. We multiply, multiply it by how many days you, the seller, have owned the property, and that's your tax proration. Sometimes you'll see agents write in some kind of weird stuff, you know, plus 1%, plus 2%. We always counter that stuff out. The seller is generally responsible to secure title. Um, of course, that can be changed in the offer of purchase. But in most cases, I think the system is kind of set up to be somewhat fair so that somebody doesn't get stuck with it twice. So if I buy a property today and a seller pays for title, when I sell that property three years from now, I'm kind of expected to pay that for that title. And we'll talk about title in another podcast. Uh, we're going to bring a title representative in to help us understand that world. But when it's all said and done, you know, usually the same client shouldn't get stuck with that twice. The bottom line with title is that there are things that are generally paid for by the seller, including something called the gap endorsement. Nonetheless, it is expected and it is in the offer that the buyer will receive title prior to closing that is free and clear of liens or encumbrances. There are always easements on properties. The utility company and, and We Energies and all these other places, depending on where you live, there's easements. You don't own all the way up to the road line, right? You may only own about two to three feet before that. Of course, you're expected to, you know, shovel the sidewalk even though you don't own it. <laughs> and if that sidewalk gets bad, then you're expected to, unfortunately, pay for it too. But um, nonetheless, um, let's skip over or pass title. So on page eight, there's a little section about property dimensions and surveys. Almost never in Wisconsin does a buyer ask that the seller provide a survey. Now, if you're the seller and you've got a survey, but by all means, make sure that the buyer gets a hold of that. We can upload that into the MLS system, or you can keep it available in your home for showings. But unless the buyer puts that into the offer to purchase, it's not expected. In Wisconsin, that's very rare. Now, in Illinois, it's a little bit different. Illinois you might have some people um, moving from Illinois to Wisconsin. I've had people from Illinois ask me, 
are you kidding me? You don't really need an attorney for a real estate transaction? And I tell them, most of my attorneys say no. You can hire one if you like. Uh, we don't really need attorneys and we don't generally do surveys. But you are more than welcome to do both if you'd like. So there are some sections on page nine of the offer as we kind of wind this, uh, this paperwork to a close. It talks a little bit about what happens if there's property damage between the time the offer is accepted and closing. And I'll just refer to, to lines 471 to 480. There's some percentages in there and it, it, it kind of talks about what to do with percentages and if it's over this, what you do, and then also what, what you might have to do with insurance proceeds. Buyer does get a chance to do a final walkthrough within three days of closing to make sure that the property has not significantly changed. If you're a buyer, you have to make sure that you do that. You may have been to the property a couple times, but you know what? You never know. Um, you never know if some shingles blew off. You never know if some siding blew off. If something, you know, the neighbors did something to the house, you wouldn't know that. And well, that's the worst feeling in the world as an agent when you get a call from a seller that just came from closing and they were so ecstatic and so happy and found the basement flooded or they found something wrong with that house. Uh, those usually can be can be attacked during the during the buyer's final walkthrough. Now, when you do the final walkthrough, that's a that's a strategy you're gonna have to talk to your real estate agent about. Some people want to do it three days in advance. So if they find something that's wrong, they've got plenty enough time to have the seller fix it. Sometimes people want to do it immediately before closing. And, and I could argue either one of those. Um, I know this goes without saying, but when you close, you are turning over your keys and your ownership of that property to the buyer. You're no longer allowed to go back to the property without permission or consent. It is criminal trespassing if you do. It's not a civil matter. Um, that's been argued before. But when a buyer gets keys and takes possession of that property, it is theirs. Um, make sure if you are a seller that you understand that you are out of that property once closing occurs. All right, one last thing on page nine, as uh, like I said, we kind of wrap this up, sex offender registry. Keep in mind that realtors are prohibited from checking that and you as the seller or the buyer, I should say really mainly, you can obtain that information from the sex offender registry. It's www.d oc.wi.gov. So www.doc is Department of Corrections. wi for Wisconsin.gov. Uh, you can also call. There's a telephone number in there, but most people usually look that up online. I'm not allowed to do that. Okay. Now there's another new section, the Foreign Investment and in Real Estate Property Tax Act. We call that FERPTA. I am going to hold off on any comments related to that because that in of itself could be its own podcast. If you have someone who's selling an interest, uh, a, foreign, a foreign buyer, a foreign seller rather, I should say, um, there are certain things that, that now need to be documented. That's a relatively new law. So the last page of the offer is just merely how we as clients, the parties, the seller and the buyer, how they authorize the delivery of documents. So my seller can say, you know what? I don't wanna sign something electronically uh, I just don't like doing that. Let's meet in person to sign everything in person. But you can deliver those documents via email. I, I give you e-consent to do so. Um, in most cases, most people in today's society love to electronically sign documents. In fact, we can send them over to you via text to do that. It's really simple today. 
All right. Well, we have covered a lot of stuff, and this was a longer podcast than in the than some of the other ones. But I think it's so important that you as the seller, especially, understand the offer that you're getting. And if you're the buyer, you understand how to coach your real estate agent in that they should know what's going into that, um, going onto that form, and they should be able to coach you appropriately. And if that's not the case, even though you have a real estate agent, I would definitely consult with an attorney if you have any doubts. I hope this was helpful in getting you uh, just a little more acclimated and familiar with the WB11 Wisconsin Residential Offer Purchase. This session of Wisconsin Real Estate Today has come to a close. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and let others know if you found this content useful. Until next time, make today your best day.